So at the end of January of 2020, I literally woke up in sweat and I'm like, oh Jesus, it's like 1918 flu pandemic. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to kill a lot of people. What we saw in Moderna was that if you could prove that the technology worked in one setting, then it will substantially improve the likelihood of success in lots of other settings. I believe we're going to see in our lifetime cancer moving from a death sentence to a disease that most of the time you can manage. There are huge areas of unmet clinical need that cause untold human suffering that their technology will be able to address. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Invest in Progress, brought to you by Scottish Mortgage. I'm Claire Shaw, an investment specialist in the team. In this podcast, we take you behind the scenes to hear the conversations that take place between the Scottish mortgage managers and leaders of some of the world's most exceptional growth companies. As we are a UK investment trust, we can only market Scottish mortgage to certain audiences and in certain jurisdictions. Check out the podcast description to ensure this content is suitable for you. And as with any investment, your capital is at risk. Throughout history, the world's finest scientific minds have struggled to develop effective vaccines to cure plagues and pandemics. Traditionally, it can take up to 15 years. On today's episode, we welcome a company widely known for designing a COVID-19 vaccine in a mere two days, and then rolling out hundreds of millions of doses to fight this deadly disease that was sweeping the globe, claiming millions of lives. This company is Moderna, and its skill, speed and efficiency and what was truly a desperate time was nothing short of extraordinary. But the true essence of our investment case for Moderna lies far beyond COVID-19. At its core, this is a software company using groundbreaking technology to develop vaccines for some of the most problematic viruses affecting human health worldwide. COVID is just one example of Moderna in action. We're thrilled to welcome the company's CEO, Stefan Bansell, to tell us just what this company is capable of. But first, I'm joined by investment manager, Tom Slater. So firstly, welcome, Tom. Hi. So we get a lot of questions about Moderna. Rarely a meeting with shareholders goes by where Moderna's not discussed. But before we delve a little deeper into Moderna, can we just maybe simply ask you, Tom, what is it that Moderna does? So Moderna um, uses messenger RNA um, to build drugs. Um, Messenger RNA is a molecule that takes the code from your DNA and instructs the cells to build proteins. And so if you can can create um, synthetic mRNA, then you can instruct your cells to build proteins that have all sorts of useful functions. Um, So what they are doing is using this completely novel way of developing vaccines, of developing drugs, um, and using it to address a whole host of um, um, unsolved clinical problems. And Moderna is obviously a large position in the portfolio for us. Why is that? I think hopefully that will come across from from hearing from Stefan, but what um, seems to me to be most important is just how transformational this technology will be if they're successful with it. It could have, we saw the impact that it, that it had in freeing us all from the, the captivity that went al- alongside the COVID pandemic. But I think that can be applied across a whole host of respiratory diseases, which, which provide a huge burden to healthcare systems. 
Um, I think it will be used to address a whole host of viruses, which we haven't had vaccines before, but um, lead to all sorts of health complications later in life. And then I think it can be deployed as a really effective tool against cancer. So there is such an enormous impact if they're successful. Okay, well, thanks, Tom. I think that sets the scene um, very well. So without further ado, let's welcome Stefan on now. Well, hello, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Thank you for coming. You're such an important company, and I'm, I'm delighted that our tens of thousands of shareholders get the opportunity to hear directly from you about what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve. Moderna is, is a company that that most of our listeners will have heard of given the integral role you played developing the vaccine for COVID. However, today, I think we want to bust some myths around the company that it's not just a COVID story. So maybe to start off with, could you just tell us how you would define Moderna and what the problem is that you're you're trying to solve? Right. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me. Uh, so as you know, Moderna was started on the premise of using messenger RNA to build a new class of medicine. We never thought this would be a one drug company. We actually said to all our early investors, it would be zero or a lot. One drug made no scientific sense. So mRNA is an information molecule. Um, it's a molecule of life. Uh, we have it in all our cells. And uh, if you think about using mRNA versus analog molecule, which is what small molecule like a Prozac or Lipitor, or large molecule like an insulin or growth hormone are, they are analog molecules where every time you think about it from a pharma standpoint, you have to do research, development, uh, manufacturing, different factories. Uh, here, mine is with four letters like zero and one with software, you could everything. Um, and so, so that's what we, we always set up to do is to build a company that will be a platform that will have many verticals Think like the Amazon different apps in terms of verticals. And and vaccine is just our first vertical getting to market. COVID-19 is just our first vaccine of that vertical. But now uh, a lot of things are coming for patients. And before you get into that and some of the exciting opportunities that are ahead of you, I think it'd be useful to take a step back and um, look at a bit of the history around around your role. You've been the chief executive since 2011, I think. And at that point, you left a, a stable job at an established company to to join what was essentially a startup. So could you just tell us the story of, of how you came to be at Moderna and a bit about that founding team? Sure. So I was indeed, you know, running Biomaria, a medical diagnostic public company around 6,000 people. And I was asked regularly to be the CEO of new startups in the, the, the biotech world. And, and most of them were not very exciting because they were like those one drug companies that are like going to Vegas and I'm not a gambler. Um, and so I, I passed those always very quickly. Uh, but then one day the founding team of Moderna, you know, three academics, one MIT, two Harvard and a VC flagship, reached out to me and said, Hey, we're going to start this new company using mRNA to make drugs. And my first reaction to them was, you're crazy, right? This is never going to work. And after a bit more thinking and looking at a bit of data, and I ended up deciding that actually I had to join this company um, because it was one of those companies that most probably happened once in your career that if you can find a path to make it work, 
And in our case was get that one drug to market, because as I said, it was going to be zero or a lot from a scientific standpoint. Then you can really have a profound impact on humanity, on society, through developing a lot of medicines that are just undoable using over old analog technologies. And this notion that you could be at the beginning of what was basically, you know, Genentech and Amgen in the 70s, uh, that basically created a new field of medicine that is called the biotech or recombinant industry. Uh, look at the Clip1 products now. They are coming from, you know, uh, that technology, the insulins, you know, the, the um, checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, you know, K2 drawing cancer and so on. So, so I think it's the same way, which is if you think about the next 20 to 30 to 40 years, because the 70s is 50 years ago now, the impact that this technology is going to have on humanity is profound. I don't even know what drugs we're going to invent in five years from now. Um, and the best example of that, that sometimes is getting people looking at me funny is, you know, we never planned for COVID. It was part of none of our business plan, not of our long range plan. But when this virus happened, you know, in a weekend, the team designed a vaccine, which is exactly the same molecule that was approved and many people got in their bodies. Um, and that having the power of this technology is, we have no idea where it's taking us, but it's going to be really, really big. So I'd be interested to explore a bit around the circumstances of, of COVID. So since you mentioned it, let's, let's go back to um, December 2019. You talked about designing the, the COVID vaccine in the space of, of 48 hours. So could you just, in non-technical terms, explain how you did that? Sure. So I was made aware of a virus and new cases of pneumonia-like disease in China between Christmas and New Year 2019. And so I was in contact with the NIH, Dr. Fauci's team, daily, sometimes several times a day, as we were learning more. And when the sequence of a virus, which is basically the, the all the uh, instruction of all the protein of a virus was put online by the Chinese. Our team jumped on it and literally copied and pasted the spike protein instruction, the genetic instruction of a, of a spike protein of a SARS-CoV-2 virus online with a mouse and then opened an app that's called the Drug Design Studio at Moderna, where we design all our drugs and they pasted that instruction. And then they, they selected a few technical specification in pull-down menus, and they were done, actually, in 10 minutes. The reason we have told the media it took 48 hours, which is the proof, is after 10 minutes, we're like, are you sure? And we freaked out everybody because, like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it's in the human in 60 days. So we need to make sure you pick the right protein and that the vaccine is done correctly, because if not, that clinical study will fail. Um, and the team kind of freaked out on us because they thought they had time to do animal testing. I said, yes, we'll do animal testing, but at the same time, not in sequence. And so, so that basically what happened in, you know, January of 2020. And that, that idea of designing a drug on a computer mm. digitally. Yes. It's just something that we have not been able to do before. Correct. And it goes back to this very basic, you know, feature of mRNA is mRNA's instruction that life or body uses, uh, but the power of it, again, it's in plants, it's in animals, it's anything that lives on this planet uses that same information system. And so basically, because mRNA is information and your body will read that instruction and make the right protein, the protein of a, of a virus, like in the case of a vaccine, but also protein of your own genes, of the genes you don't have if you have a genetic disease and so on, 
is we make everything with the same chemistry, the same molecules. Uh, and so because we, as we think about drugs, we think about what code we want to code in your body. Then we literally develop that app, which allows us to design a drug in silico on the computer. And you, you talked about um, COVID taking you by surprise. It wasn't part of the, the business plan, as you say. So what was going through your mind at that time? You know, how, how quickly did you realize the, the scale of the problem? You, know, you talked about doing the, the animals and humans and testing, which suggests that the, the urgency was clear right from the, from the get-go. Yeah, so earlier in the, what well, is now a pandemic, uh, so December 19, most of January 2020, I thought it was going to be an outbreak like SARS or MERS. And so we wanted to move fast because I've always thought this platform could be positioned for pandemic extremely well. But to be honest, you know, in December 19 and most of January 2020, I still thought it was an outbreak, but it was a good opportunity for us to understand how this platform could behave in the future for a real pandemic. Um, and so I really wanted to show ourselves and the U.S. government uh, through Dr. Fauci's team that we could really go from a sequence of a virus put online by a government to first in-human injection of a phase one clinical study in 60 days. I had told that to Fauci in September 2019. And I think he and his team left allowed pretty a long time because it took them 20 months for SARS to go from the virus identified to starting a phase one study, 20 months. And we, I, I told them, yeah, this funny French guy with a funny accent telling him that we could do that in two months versus 20 months. And so it was our desire to be able to show we could do it for a potential pandemic down the road. And it's toward the end of January, Tom, of 2020, that actually when I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, around midweek, after talking to a lot of scientists, like, you know, Sir Jeremy Farah, who used to run the Wellcome Trust, and a couple of other scientists, and also, you know, being my own Excel model on my laptop every day with cases in different countries, that I started to realize, I said, geez, it's going to be like a 1918 flu pandemic. You know, I've been in infectious disease all my life. You know, Biomario, my previous company, was uh, a leader in infectious disease diagnostics. So we were part of a, the flu scare, you know, in 2009, if you recall, out of Mexico. Uh, I was part of a big, big food poisoning issue in Japan early in my career. So I've always been, you know, very attuned and, and always uh, keeping an eye on for infectious disease. Uh, but it's it's around the, I think, 27th of January that I literally woke up in sweat one morning at 4 a.m. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, it's like a 1918 flu pandemic. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to kill a lot of people. And And I guess with that realization and then... You know, I guess world leaders were, were increasingly making making a path to your doorway. Um, you had whole populations looking for a, a solution. You know, there's just a huge amount of pressure on the company, on you at that point. The stakes were so high. So can you talk us through just how you, how you managed to deal with that, how you stayed focused on, on bringing the vaccine to, to market? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my wife, Brenda, will tell you that actually 
I was actually made for a moment like this, just, and I don't know if it's my education, my genes, I, I have no idea, uh, my training. Um, but from a personality standpoint, the higher the stake, the more my brain focuses on kind of what is the one or two things, not 50, that we have to do. And, and I can keep kind of the background noise out of bothering me. And the piece that was clear for me, again, being a, stud, a, a student of infectious disease, of history, I was very familiar with what happened in 1918 through the flu pandemic. Uh, and it became very clear in my mind that millions of people were going to die. And I really believe because we had done nine vaccines before COVID. So that I really believe that all technology had a very serious shot at making it work. I knew we were going to be faster than analog technology, like protein technologies and so on. And so it just kind of zoomed in very quickly to say, hey, we have to make this work and we have to behave in a way where we, we're going to try to save every hour we can. Because if you compound this over what it usually take years of development, as you know, the fastest vaccine before us was four years to launch. But that if we really focused and collaborated with government official regulatory bodies and so on, we had a shot of saving a lot of lives. And for me, it was how do we shave every day that we can? And that, you know, I guess that challenge changed um, massively over over the course of that process that, you know, at one point it was it was scientific and, and based around the, the studies in humans. And then once you got approved, it was managing almost instant global demand and, and so a manufacturing scaling challenge. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, so actually, thankfully, you know, having worked at large companies like Lilly and Biomario, from the very beginning, I had two big kind of track of work that needed to be accomplished. The clinical side of the house that we talked about briefly and that has been, I think, pretty well reported by the media as people were locked home and so on through 2020. But at the same time, it was clear to me that we needed to do a massive, uh, almost miracle of scaling up manufacturing. Uh, and again, you know, I'm an engineer. I've worked at Lilly in manufacturing. Uh, I was in charge of supply chain planning and stuff like that, which was kind of handy in the pandemic. And so uh, literally as I came back from Davos and I decided to really spend a lot of time with my team on the phone from Davos, just connecting the dots for them, because what we have not talked about yet is that there was actually quite a number of members on my team that didn't believe it was going to be a pandemic. Um, and, and Juan, who uh, now he's retired, but he was the head of manufacturing. I remember going to his office and and asking him, hey, I do make a billion dollars next year. And it was in January 2020. And he's like, you know, we made only 100,000 doses last year through clinical trial studies. And I told him, I know, but you're wasting time right now. How do we make a billion dollars next year? Um, and so we actually started this manufacturing scale-up journey at the end of January 2020. Um and it was an incredible, incredible achievement from the team and all our partners, this notion that you could go after 10,000 times more products in such a short time frame, especially as you know, it's a regulated industry with a very important FDA and regulator oversight. Uh, and that's the, the, the story that has not really been told in the media that I think for me is as significant, if not even more significant than the clinical story. And... I don't want to, to dwell on this, but I do think that it has been the, 
the area of almost um, singular focus for for stock markets in the past past year or so is what demand looks like for COVID vaccines as we enter an endemic phase. Um, and what, what's your reflection on that? So a few things. First, I think we collectively, and I include you know other uh, vaccine players, I think I've been surprised by the the pace of a drop in demand. I think everybody was surprised by how quickly the demand will be reduced. Um, and I think it's accentuated in the US where I think the political environment and the politicization of COVID and then vaccines in general, which as you might know, is leading to some parents not getting their kids vaccinated against measles and other things and a lot of cases popping up, which is very, very sad is the piece that has been the most surprising uh, sort of COVID fatigue and how some, I mean, one of the numbers that I find the most surprising in the US, and you know, we are currently still in the middle of a season, so I don't know what it will look like at the end precisely, but you have around two out of three Americans who are getting a flu shot to be protected against flu infection and hospitalization are basically saying, I don't want a COVID shot. If you look at the numbers, yep. around 50 million COVID shots compared to 150 million flu shots. Uh, and that's really surprising given you have three times more risk of being hospitalized by COVID than flu. And that's one of those things that I think sometimes being in the middle of something has uh, benefits, sometimes it has you know, liabilities. And I think the liability of being maybe too scientific, too rational about it, uh, made all of us blindsided uh, by how many people would be willing to take another booster. So let's let's move on from COVID because I think it's it's validated mRNA as a technology. Um, ten years ago, Moderna was was unproven and capital constrained, but ten years on, um, you've received that validation. You've got billions of dollars of of cash on the balance sheet, and you've been able to deploy that into R and D. You now have a very rich pipeline of of candidates. So can you talk about the opportunities you have firstly in respiratory diseases and and why mRNA has a better chance of delivering more effective vaccines than, than we've been used to? Sure. So I think on the respiratory side of vaccines, the exciting part, I think, is combinations because there's around 10 viruses that get people with full-like symptom disease. You know, RSV is another one of them that people start to hear more about, uh, but there are, there are more. And a lot of time, as you know, people think they got a flu shot that doesn't work because they get a flu shot, they get flu-like symptom disease. But because they, most of the time, have never run a PCR, they don't know what bug they got inside their body. And so we think the ability to combine like flu COVID, flu COVID and RSV in a single annual shot that you adapt for every strain is the way to go. The The one place where I think we're going to do things that have been impossible to do before is in the latent virus. Those are viruses that once in your body, never leave your body. People are familiar with a few like HIV, like HPV. That is one of a few that has a very good vaccine on the market uh, that prevents you know, cervical and head and neck cancer. But there's a lot of, of viruses that most people have never heard of, like CMV, uh, but it's the number one cause of birth defect uh, in the developed world, like Europe and the US and Asia. EBV is the virus giving mononucleosis and is the number one cause of multiple sclerosis, uh, most probably the number one cause of blood cancer. And so there's a lot of viruses 
for which there's no vaccine available today because the virus are just too complex. To give you a sense of CMV vaccine has six mRNA molecule per vial so that people can make a lot of antibodies that are necessary to protect them because the virus are very complex. And everybody tried to do those using recombinant, you know, kind of Amgen Genentech old technology, and they all failed in the clinic. And so I think we're going to be able to do a lot of vaccine against virus that hurts people, for which existing technology just are not good enough. So let's explore both of those. So on the, on the respiratory side, if you're able to target more of those 10 different viruses that we sort of collectively think of as flu with, with combined vaccines, what, what will the what will the impact of that be? What will be the benefit of doing that to the healthcare system? So, I mean, the, the easy one, of course, is death in the in the elderly and, and the young kids. Uh, hospitalization, you know, uh, we are building a plant in the UK to customize vaccine for, 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 for consumer in the UK. And as we were looking at building this plant, you know, the government told us that one of the many reasons they got convinced that they had to build such a plant in the UK was that if you look at the aging of population, if they didn't get such technology doing combination, they would over time have to build a couple more hospitals in the UK just to deal with the aging population and the math. If you look at the epidemiology of how many people you're going to need to be hospitalized uh, through a winter season if you didn't have such a manufacturing plant. And so I think the, the big impact, of course, is going to be hospitalization, but also just kind of productivity. You know, if you look at economic factors, uh, as we have aging population, that has an impact on people getting older and getting more disease, but so it has an impact on the workforce, uh, which, as we know, is a lot of issues, driving inflation, driving productivity. And so, and so I think those are all the, the benefits that we're going to see as a society by having this type of technology. These are these are ex, um, areas where we've had an existing approach, but this what you're doing is just going to lead to a much more effective vaccine from these flu-like symptoms. Correct, uh, because if you think about it today, respiratory disease is depending on countries in the developed world, the number fourth or fifth cause of death. And if you think about it, we have a technology, like we don't have a technology yet, and we'll talk about, I'm sure about cancer or cardiac disease and so on. But that should be the number 20 cause of death. It should not be in the top four, five, or six, depending on the country. And so I think it's one of those rare opportunities in science where if you can push hard and bring those innovation to consumers, uh, you can really transform their lives and transform the quality of their lives, which I think is going to be even more important with aging population. So that's, and those are big markets and growing because of that aging population dynamic. Correct. You have both a growing population in the developed world. You have, as we know, growing population in developing world. As, as you know, we read a lot, China is going to get uh, older very, very quickly. And then you have also the increase of GDP per capita in the developing world. Because as people, you know, in India and many countries around the world uh, have more and more income, they want the same things we want. They want the TV, they want the car, but so they don't want to get sick. They want to die, or their parents to die of a, a cold, which would be, of course, terrible, which happened, of course, in the developing world. And and this might be a, an, a useful point to just dig into what is Moderna's competitive edge in going after these, these marketplaces? Yeah, I think a few things. Um, one is, is our 
total focus on the money. You know, this is a new field. There's a lot to invent. And that's all we do. I think this focus is really important if you try to do something very different at a different pace, at a different scale. Um, and one that seems maybe mundane example of that in the real world is, you know, in the US, we have been through this 23, you know, uh, season able to increase our market share a lot versus the, the other mRNA vaccine. Um, and one of the reasons is because we have a pre-filled syringe. So it's very easy for pharmacies, which also have workforce issue to just vaccinate people at very big throughput. And why we'll be able to do that at scale earlier is because, as you know, freezing water makes water expand. And whether you do it in a glass syringe or a plastic syringe, if you have water expanding, it's not going to be good, except if you figure out how to do it right. This is what drives product differentiation uh, and, and drives basically sales. So coming back to latent viruses, you touched on some examples. Now, as, as I understand it, there are there is really quite a large number of these these latent viruses. Um, I, I guess the 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 name is almost wrong, isn't it? That latent viruses might give people the impression that they don't matter, but they can have a huge impact to clinical outcomes. Yes, and if you think about it again for a person, the way we think about latent virus is those are virus that most of them will create short-term health impact, like mononucleosis for EBV, you know, birth defect and miscarriage in case of CMV. But most of them, we believe, drive cancer. And again, HPV is a great example. And the way to think about it for a non-biologist is that if you have a foreign virus in your body forever, uh, it's going to drive inflammation. And it has been massively documented that inflammations drive cancer. And so I think we should be able to have a, a, a huge public health impact by getting people vaccinated in their teenager years because most of those virus, latent virus, are transmitted through body fluids. So when people start kissing is when those viruses start to spread uh, in terms of age range. And so, like, I think many countries have done a remarkable work with HPV, with a Merck or MSD vaccine, which is a great vaccine that I think every young boy or girl should should, should have access to uh, in terms of prevention of, of cancer. It's really remarkable. And so I think for around, as you say, a dozen of those viruses that do not have a clinical solution today, Modern is very committed to take those to the market. You know, CMV is already in phase three. We're just waiting for, for data now uh, and, and should have an impact on a lot of people. Let's move on to an area you, you mentioned briefly, but I think many of our listeners might be surprised by, and that's the, the advances that you're making in, in oncology. So can you just tell us about the concept of personalized cancer vaccines? We basically start by doing a next-gen sequencing. Basically, we read all the letters of DNA of your cancer cell. We then read all the letters of DNA of your healthy cell. We send both of them to the Amazon cloud, AWS. And then we compare where are the mutations happening on your DNA between a healthy cell of yours and the cancer cell of yours by just comparing every letter of a free gigabyte of information. And then we use an AI system that we develop with scientists and clinicians around the best oncology centers around the world 
to pick 34 mutations that are going to be the one most visible to your immune system. And what we do, uh, we basically code a, a prolonged mRNA that has stitched together those 34 mutations that we inject to you uh, in your arm to basically, uh, if I simplify, uh, reboot your immune system. Not the entire immune system, but try to have your immune system sees those 34 mutations that it missed before. And you talked about this for the individual. So surely that's going to be a very difficult thing to scale. It's not like the the COVID vaccine where it's one vaccine, billion doses. This is uh, one vaccine, one dose. So talk about what that means for, for your business. Yeah, and it's interesting because internally, when we saw that great data last year, I basically had a meeting with a manufacturing team and I told them, you realize we're going to go for after climbing Mount Everest, we're going to go for K2 now uh, because we have to do, as you say, another scale-up, but very different in nature because it's what actually internally we call a scale-out, which is just the ability to do a lot of the same things for different people at the same time. And the scale-up in terms of, of, of a scale-out, I should say, in terms of numbers is very similar to COVID because if you think about the number or capacity to do the phase two was 100 people, each of the phase three is around a thousand people, if I run all my numbers. And when you're going to go commercial, you're going to be hundreds of thousands of people and then into the millions. So if you look at the, at the scale up from hundred to millions, that's the same type of scale up that you have to do than what we have to do for COVID. And so basically we have the same team doing it. And we have a dedicated plant that we bought. Uh, we bought the shell to save time to market. And we are developing a lot of robotics, a lot of digital tools, just to be able to shrink and shrink and shrink uh, the time it takes us to make one product from one human at a time. Because as you can do simple math, if instead of taking five days to make the mRNA, which it took us in the phase two, for every human, it takes you one day. Then you can do 5x more throughput. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening who've been affected by cancer or or have loved ones who've who've been affected. For them, could you just tell us what types of cancer this could potentially address and how far away are we um, from these products um, being available to patients? Sure. So in terms of space, uh, we think over time it will take a few more years and the first one will be skin cancer because that's where we have more data. Over time, most solid tumor should be able to work. We believe that again, especially with liquid biopsy, as you go earlier and earlier in disease, the number of tumors that's going to open is going to increase uh, with time. The time to market, um, the best path is potential launch in 2025. Uh, that's like I used to say in 2020 when COVID happens, if the best path was a year-end launch, which is what we're able to execute. So the best path is a 2025 launch. The critical path now is manufacturing. I just spoke about manufacturing. But... Uh, I think a 25 launch for melanoma is something that is doable and we're working very hard because obviously every week we can shave to that launch will of course help a lot of people. Let's touch on um, Bansell Philanthropies. Yes. Um, an, an organization set up by, by you and your wife. So you, you disclosed publicly that the proceeds from your Moderna stock options um, you directed towards your, your philanthropic work. So... Can you talk a little bit 
about what that work is and and the the organizations you're involved with? Sure. I mean, maybe let me start by saying, yeah, my wife and I decided that, you know, we're going to give most of our wealth away because nobody needs that type of wealth. And there's a lot of problems in the world that we feel really important to to help. We have basically three priorities to your question. One is social injustice. Social justice around that whole spectrum is how do we help either prevent people to get into trouble or help people who are in trouble. The second topic is health, which will not come as a surprise given what I do for a living. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, obviously, in terms of health injustice. We talked about mental health. Another piece that I'm very passionate about is I think the health inequalities are tremendous around the world. And the third topic is the climate. You know, I'm personally, as a, as a chemical engineer, very worried about our negative feedback loop that I think the world is on right now. One of the things that I've seen in philanthropy, like in the for-profit world, is I believe a lot in what I call social entrepreneurs on the not-for-profit world, which is people that have set up not-for-profit organization and are still running them. I think they have very similar traits uh, as founders-led companies in terms of how much they sweat the detail, how much they care, how much they know, how much a dollar can do, and they really sweat every dollar. They don't have usually big, you know, uh, fundraising teams and big organizations using a lot of consultants and other things. And so we tend to try to, to, to identify social entrepreneurs that have already done remarkable things and try to accelerate the impact in terms of area under the curve by changing the slope of their impact through capital, but also through, uh, through coaching. Uh, it's amazing given how much of an impact on the world you've, you've had in your day job to hear that, that, that what you're doing at the weekends as well. Um, we ask all, all our guests the same final question. And maybe in Moderna's case, it's, it's more obvious than some, but what does the world look like if Moderna succeeds in its mission? Well, how long do you have? Uh, I think in the next 10 years, I take a, a time frame, five, 10 years, that is meaningful to, to people. Um, I think we really move a needle in terms of the respiratory disease, as we discussed, you know, number four, five, or six, depending on country, killer, which will be, you know, number 20 on the list. I think we prevent maybe a 25% to a third of cancer happening through the latent uh, various vaccines that we bring to market, like CMV, EBV, and so on. And I think as we discussed, we change cancer care in a very profound way. You know, I told our team when the data came out uh, last year for the cancer product that I told them in five years, people will have forgotten what Moderna did for the pandemic. Because I believe in five years, people will know us as a company who has most disrupted cancer care uh, through this individualized product which makes so much sense because cancer is an individual disease in, at, the, at the mechanistic genetic level, uh, which is a very important scientific realization. And so so I think that this combined with, as I said, the luck we have timing-wise of liquid biopsy becoming better and better, I think you combine those two and you're in a world where most people should get a liquid biopsy every year through their blood work, like they check their cholesterol. And if they get a positive one year, meaning they have a pretty recent cancer because last year we didn't get it. And and we developed a product for them. And so between preventing cancer through latent vaccine and taking care of cancer early with, with high impact, I believe we're going to see in our lifetime for those of us in our 51, cancer moving from a death sentence to a disease that most of the time you can manage. That's certainly a mission that all of us hope you've, you have an enormous amount of success on. 
And I feel guilty for for taking an hour of your time and, and distracting you from from that mission. But thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us today about what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's been really, really great to listen. Thank you so much, Tom, to you for the time and your questions. And thank you also for the partnership with Bailey Gifford. You guys have been instrumental in our success and are great partners and help us think and see around corners, which we deeply value. Thanks, Stefan. So, Tom, you opened the conversation with Stefan by saying you wanted to bust some myths around Moderna, that this wasn't just a COVID play. And I think that conversation did a pretty good job of shedding quite a different light um, on Moderna for our shareholders. And we finish off each episode by asking the managers the same questions about the investment case. And so I think maybe just taking a step back, Tom, you know, let's go back to the beginning. What was it about Moderna that initially attracted you to this company? The breadth of what they can do with the technology. I think in drug discovery, in in biotech companies, um, you, you've had a situation historically where there was no um, indication from the success of a drug about the likely success of subsequent drugs. Yeah, they, they're completely independent. But what we saw in Moderna was that if you could prove that the technology worked in one setting, mm-hmm. then it will substantially improve the likelihood of success in lots of other settings that it was a, a modality, a way of treating disease um, that had very wide application mm-hmm. um, and and where the, 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 you would see this, um, if they had success, it would beget more success. And we talk a lot about company leaders, founders, management teams, and, and the importance of them you know, in terms of the company's chances of success. And I think we got a great flavor of Stefan's personality and what he brings to the table um, during your conversation. But I'm interested in actually the founding team behind Moderna. What kind of role did they play in, in, in first of all, bringing Stefan in and setting the company up the way, the way we know it today? Well, I think the starting point is the academic work that had, had been done in this area. And then... I think the the crucial ingredient came from the the venture funders and specifically um, flagship pioneering and the chairman Nubara Fayan in identifying just how significant this technology this this set of discoveries could be, yeah. and then the ability to translate that understanding of the opportunity into attracting somebody like Stefan to to what was essentially a startup organization. Yeah. Um, you know, because because of the vision, because of the understanding of just how big this could be. Yeah. And you you asked um I think you asked Stefan outright, you know, what he thought Moderna's competitive advantage was and, and he said this sort of sole focus on mRNA. But I'm interested from your perspective and from an investment perspective, what do you see as as Moderna's competitive advantage? Well, I think that um, they they don't come with the baggage of a traditional pharmaceutical company. They were designed to, uh, as an organization, to bring this, this new technology to the world. And I think what came out in his answer is that it's you know, not, not only do you need to have um, an effective treatment, an effective um, vaccine, 
Um, but there are all sorts of other technologies around that um, that can that can make the the product um, so much more appealing. Um, you know, we, we, I'll give you an example from from COVID when we we had the the first vaccine uh, from um, from Pfizer. Um, it had to be stored at um, minus eighty five, I think, and so it present. You know, the, you you had a, a vaccine, but um, you know, it presented all sorts of logistical challenges. Um, Moderna's vaccine not not only had better efficacy yeah. as you know, demonstrated in the trials, but also it didn't require this this cold supply chain um, that presented all sorts of logistical hurdles. And that's that's not an accident. It's the accumulation of all sorts of small breakthroughs that Moderna has made through its life as a business in thinking about how it brings this technology to the world. And I think, Tom, you described the competitive advantage, you know, very clearly, but there's still a lot of skepticism around the company and it has faced a really challenging time post-COVID. What is it that you think that the market is is missing when it looks at Moderna? Well, I think that there has been a massive focus on COVID um, and the demand for um, COVID shots in a post-pandemic world has been a lot lower than people thought. Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as that, really. You know, that's that's the immediate um, cash generator for the company. The pipeline of drugs, you know, aren't aren't haven't been approved. They aren't selling. We must attach some risk factor to them. Um, and the you know the, the the market has been concerned about the COVID related revenues, and attaches a, a much higher risk factor or risk weighting to to all of those future products than we do. Back to this this this. It's central insight that success in one thing makes success in other related areas much more likely. What do you see as the biggest challenge to Moderna from here and how well placed do you think they are to overcome those challenges? Well, the first one is that they have to develop more of the skills that big pharmaceutical companies have already. Okay. The, the commercial organization, the ability to predict demand, um, to to sell the product, to 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 um, actually get that out there into the marketplace. And then I think the next step challenges are engineering challenges. Um, you know, personalized cancer vaccines um, are you know, going, going to be, it's going to be a real engineering challenge to, to produce those rapidly and at scale. And this is a company that's shown that they can do this. I mean, what they, what they did with the COVID vaccine um, was remarkable. Um, but this, the, the 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 personalized cancer vaccines is a whole different set of challenges, and they, they are big ones. And just to finish, Tom, a final question from me. You mean we talk about wanting to own exceptional growth companies? You know, what is it about Moderna that you think that it's got that chance to be one of those exceptional growth companies? And what's the scale of the opportunity in, in your eyes from here? I think this this is this is a company that it's really obvious and 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 pretty straightforward, and um, that there are huge areas of unmet clinical need that cause untold human suffering that their technology will be able to address, and they will create a huge amount of value for society in doing that, um, and even if they take a small fraction of that value that they create that will translate into an enormous business opportunity. 
Well, I think that feels like a, a good um, a good note to end on. So, so thank you, Tom, for your time today. Thank you. So a huge thank you to our guest today, Stefan Bansell of Moderna and Scottish mortgage manager, Tom Slater. In the next episode, we welcome Christoph Gabold, the co-founder of Climeworks, whose mission I would describe as truly extraordinary. This is a company pioneering technology to suck carbon dioxide out of the air. And if it succeeds, this could be one of the most critical companies over the coming decades from a climate perspective. You can listen to this podcast on all major podcast platforms and hit follow or subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And don't forget, you can also stream all episodes from season one and learn more about us at scottishmortgage.com. You've been listening to Invest in Progress. Thank you for joining us.